Uh, welcome to another episode of Not Investment Advice, but a very, very, very special episode today. We've got the man himself, Michael Saylor, is here. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Trunk, you're just going to say like how, how this all came to be in the first place, this, uh, this link up. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the first question I wanted to throw at you had to do with how uh, we were able to reach out to you was via a Peter Diamandis tweet. So I was blown away when I found out that Peter Diamandis, the founder of XPRIZE, went to school with you at MIT, right? Yeah, um, I, uh, I was in the Theta Delta Chi fraternity and uh, Peter is also in the Theta Delta Chi fraternity. So he actually was a, uh, like, he was uh, four years ahead of me. So I guess he was like a first year grad student or graduate student when I was a freshman, but uh, the grad students would always come back to the house. So uh, he hung out, we got to know each other and we had common interests because he was an aeronautical engineering grad and I was an aeronautical engineering student. So sometimes I'd uh, come across his notes in the fraternity library. <laughs> sometimes you get in, in, into a difficult project, you call the upper class, but it asks him, how did they deal with it? And Steve is also a very big, into, um, he, he founded an organization called Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, I guess. And uh, so everybody that's into space was uh, kind of clustered around the Aero Astro Labs and we would all get together and talk about uh, different things. So that's how I know him. Absolutely. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. And the, the question I wanted to ask was around his tweet where I had tweeted this video of you from 2012 when uh, the book, uh, The Mobile Revolution came out. And right. I know you've discussed it in the past, but I'd love to hear more about when you say somebody knows enough, but in a kind of a dilettante way, but not super well, that they can hurt themselves. Have have you gone through that experience and how have you kind of, have you seen anything in this current cycle where you're watching around and, and seeing how price asset moves in very classes are happening? You're seeing people are not fully understanding uh, what's going on here. Yeah. I mean, that, that phrase, it, it refers to a dinner I had with a very rich, uh, rich fellow. And we were talking about, um, about uh, iPhones and, uh, People that were in the business that were using the iPhone, living on it, breathing on it, could see the potential. You know, and as you know, the potential of the iPhone was to replace the tape recorder and the video camera and the photograph and, and rebuild our relationships and potentially topple small governments, <laughs> change the way you thought about everything, change healthcare. But um, someone that studied the iPhone for like two hours would say, oh, it looks like an expensive phone, but eventually it'll get manufactured and commoditized and the price is going to go towards zero. So uh, the people that were outsiders that had spent a couple of hours playing with it, didn't really think about the implications. They would model it based upon something else. And a lot of times they're just very dismissive, you know, and, and uh, the point that I was making there was, was, uh, not necessarily, right? If it's if it's uh, if it's an industrial piece of equipment and the functionality is fixed, it may very well commoditize. But if it becomes uh, a fashion item and a personal item, and you sleep with it, right? You know, and you 
you use it in your in your social life, your business life, and it keeps changing, then there's no reason it would ever necessarily commoditize. It'll either hold its price. You know, the, the example of holding its price is like a very nice bag, a Birkin bag or a Gucci bag. They're holding their price for 5,000 years. But of course, you know, comparing an iPhone to a handbag, you, you would think it ought to be able to do at least as well as a handbag, right? I mean, in theory, with technology, we're going to get in a Tesla car and one day it'll be strong enough to levitate, hover and fly 500 miles an hour. So deciding that it's getting commoditized is a presumption that there's no technology involved and it doesn't and, it's, and it doesn't matter personally to us. So I, I think in general, you see that with all new technology, right? People are dismissive of it. Uh, how many people spent a thousand hours thinking about the applications of the iPhone? Well, I mean, I did. I wrote a book about it, right? Uh, I, I but but I lived it, right? And I'm in the business, but a lot of people didn't, and they would dismiss it. But I think the same thing is true of uh, you know uh, Google Maps, yeah, you know, search. How many people underestimated uh, the potential of a YouTube type thing, right? I mean. Most people, right? Most people, when Google bought YouTube, everybody thought they overpaid. They paid some, what, like a billion dollars for a company with no revenue or something. And Bilal and used to work at YouTube, funny enough. Yeah, and probably one of the best investments of all time now, right? Apart from yeah. your investment in Bitcoin at one point, we're going to look back at that. So <laughs> yeah, and I we're going to come back to that in, in a minute. In the world today, you got the same thing, right? Which is if... The average person spending an hour or two hours says, Bitcoin, this crypto stuff, it's all just speculation. But, and, and even when I say uh, this is digital energy, well, you know, uh, I don't know, two thirds of the people in the crypto industry for the last decade, they don't understand what I'm saying. So there are people that have been in the crypto industry for a decade that have master's degrees in computer science, and they think that they're very informed. And they don't even understand what I'm saying. And, and, they, and they've got such a strong bias toward their point of view that they're unwilling to accept the new idea and even stop and think about it for a bit. So I, I don't think it's limited to non-technologists. I think non-technologists would look and you would say, okay, well, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is digital money. What is money? You remember you guys sat through 20 hours of my lectures on what is money? Okay, I'm <laughs> going to tell you a secret. I didn't know what money was when Robert Breedlove asked me to go and do the podcast. He said, come on my show called What is Money? And I said, well, gosh, I guess I'd better think about what is money before I get on the show. And then I ended up writing out a 10-page outline, and it becomes 30 hours of discussions. But, but you know, I got to the year 2020 without thinking about what is money. Most of the people in the world don't know what is money. So if you say it's digital money, that doesn't click. And then if you say uh, it's digital property, most people don't know what property is. They haven't thought about the definition of property or property rights. What is that really, right? Do you own your own stuff if you live in North Korea? Do you own anything, right? I mean, what, what does it mean to own anything? And then, of course, if you call it digital energy, most people don't. Well, they, they, they're like, oh, no, it's not energy. You can't run a car on it. But then they haven't thought about what is a digital map or digital music or digital communications or digital relationship. 
And I had the advantage a little bit of that because if you read the mobile wave, the mobile wave is about what happens when you have digital maps, digital relationships. And the only difference is all that digital information is non-conservative. And the whole point of money is money is energy, economic energy, and therefore, i.e. conservative. And so when Satoshi invented something that allowed you to transfer value from two parties without an intermediary, not only did Satoshi invent the ability to transfer energy in cyberspace, Satoshi invented the ability to manifest energy in cyberspace, something conservative. Well, people that are computer scientists don't understand conservation of energy. You know, if I'm criticizing the computer science geeks, right? And this is not at MIT, they make you study physics and thermodynamics, right? And, and, and mechanical engineering as well as computer science. But if all you did was study computer science and you never studied physics and thermodynamics and mechanical and aeronautical engineering, then you're lulled into this false sense of security where you think you can just make any rule and do anything because there's no conservation of energy. The, the reason that uh, aeronautical engineering is a really good grounding to understand what money is or what crypto should be or what Bitcoin should be is aeronautical engineering is like the ultimate systems engineering discipline. You have to master computer science, computer engineering, mechanical engineering, uh, metallic, metal, metallurgy. You have to master chemical engineering, electronic, le electrical engineering, control systems. You have to master ocean engineering, fluid dynamics, uh, you know, propulsion, all of these things which are highly inconvenient for a computer scientist. So I guess, uh, I guess what I'd say is, I think most people that grew up in the crypto industry, they only know enough to hurt themselves. I think most people that aren't technologists, they only know enough to hurt themselves. And if the people that really understand the thing, like if you go into Google and you find the person that worked on Google Maps for five years, if they understood engineering and computer science and they stood and stared for five, they're probably understanding the thing, right? The people that, that spend the most time and have the most invested in it, they typically understand the thing. And, and generally, the conclusion is they invest 100x more than you would. They value it much more than you know, the guys at Google paid a billion dollars for something that if you, if you had asked 1,000 investors on Wall Street, what is YouTube worth? The high bidder was probably Google, and there were probably five out of a thousand that would have said it's worth a lot, and ninety-nine percent of them would have said, "Are you out of your mind? It's worth nothing." And so I, I think that um, the if you're looking for a big idea or the the grand idea, it is that you really have to focus upon a small area. And then if you focus on something, spend thousands and thousands of hours, 10,000 hours focused on that thing. And if you have an open mind, maybe you can, maybe your opinion matters. And then uh, like, I'm not going to give you a, my opinions on the 99% of the stuff in the world that's really important because I haven't focused on it like asking me about vaccines and biomed and gene splicing and, you know, even the latest propulsion technology, I, I haven't spent thousands of hours thinking about rocket 
propulsion technology breakthroughs in the last decade. So I, I think that the lesson you learn is probably better to stay in your lane. But if you're going to invest money or your reputation or your, or your life savings, you probably ought to really, really focus on that. And you shouldn't be cavalier or nonchalant because it's, it's really easy to make mistakes today. Completely. Well, Michael, we, we talk a lot about um, like memes and money, what money actually is. I think Jack had a question on like a higher level question on what Bitcoin is and how money ties into that. Yeah, I think I, actually what you just mentioned, Michael, has like reshaped the question for me. So if you use like the iPhone analogy where the software built on the iPhone gave it this platform where people could make use of, use of it without doing hundreds of thousands of hours or thousands of hours of research, is there like an, an analogous uh, application for Bitcoin where like pe at what point do people adopt it that... Um, haven't done the thousands of hours of research and get the uh, and, and feel confident to make that decision. Does that like, question make sense? Yeah, like what's the killer app for Bitcoin? Yes. Yeah. Well, so first of a framework, you know, like the the iPhone was it was not going anywhere until the app to the application store hit, <laughs> and they had the iOS as a programming language. If you look at the iPhone one and the iPhone two, there's no cut and paste, there's no app store. It's kind of a, a dead thing. And then iPhone three hits, and now you've got an app store, and now you've got an explosion of thousands of applications, and it's its own ecosystem. And uh, the killer apps, you know, become WhatsApp, you know, Facebook, uh, uh, Instagram. Right. And the world's never the same again. Go, I mean, Google. But uh, if you look at Bitcoin, you know, think, think superconducting network, superconducting energy network. OK, I want to move uh, energy at the speed of light for fr friction free for free. And I want to instantiate it forever, like it, put it in a crucible. So when I look at Bitcoin miners, that's what I see. Right. I see uh, I see the caissons of a digital energy or caissons of a digital energy network. Right. They um, they have created uh, the ability to digitize energy. And so once I convert the energy by, you know, it, it could be electrical engineering energy, but it could be political energy. I take a billion dollars of yen or I take a billion dollars of electricity. Either way, it pops up as Bitcoin. Now I've got it on the base layer and uh, that the base layer is, is the foundation of the digital economy of the 21st century. Kind of like, you know, the iPhone and the app store is the base layer of the mobile economy, you know, and then the issue is what comes next? Well, um, I think that um, if you, if you think about the Bitcoin economy, layer two is, is open uh, permissionless transaction protocols. Okay, layer one is the, the open permissionless monetary protocol, which is the thing we call Bitcoin. And uh, layer two, the, the most famous example of a layer two is Lightning, an open permissionless transaction protocol. But, but by no means is it the only possible layer two, and th in theory, if you create an open permissionless protocol, 
that integrates with Bitcoin, it could be a competitor to Lightning. But right now, Lightning looks like the dominant open, per, open permissionless transaction protocol. Then you've got layer three. Layer three would be an application uh, and maybe a famous example would be like PayPal or uh, Cash App payment applications, any application that's moving Bitcoin around. Now, you can, you can have a proprietary application like uh, Robinhood um, was an application to buy Bitcoin, but you couldn't uh, withdraw or deposit the, the Bitcoin. So initially, uh, PayPal was the same way. Initially, they're proprietary, but then Lightning comes along and there's a lot of pressure to open them and make them open applications. So in the past uh, couple of months, Kraken, Kraken, uh, well, actually, I would say Kraken and, uh, and uh, Cash App have supported uh, Lightning. And so they're extremely open, high performance, whereas PayPal, I, get, I could be wrong here, you could correct me, but I think PayPal and Robinhood supported withdrawal and deposit on the layer one. So they're kind of lower performance open. But um, I think that you're going to see, you're going to see pretty much store of value applications that use the base layer. If you want to do cool transactional applications, like a billion transactions a day at the speed of light for free, you're not going to do it with layer one. You need, and if you want to be open, you do it with layer two. But if you want to be proprietary, well, heck, that's already happening, right? Binance and Coinbase and, and the like, even Cash App lets you send Bitcoin cash tag to cash tag in a proprietary way. I think that that was the status quo we're kind of at at the beginning of 2022. But uh, there's additional layers, right? That The next layer is going to be Bitcoin derivatives. Like MicroStrategy is a derivative of Bitcoin, uh, GBTC is a derivative of Bitcoin. All the Bitcoin mining stocks are derivatives of Bitcoin. So you say, how do you get mass adoption? Well, pretty much every shareholder of MicroStrategy is a Bitcoin user, right? Because via the derivative. Um, if a country buys a bunch of Bitcoin and then issues a currency, the currency becomes a Bitcoin derivative. So when a company issues stock backed by Bitcoin, the equity is a derivative. And when a country issues currency, the currency is a derivative. Now you've got, that's layer four. Those are spreading, right? I mean, Beto uh, is a Bitcoin derivative. And if, the, if and when the regulators allow a spot ETF, that'll be the mother of all Bitcoin derivatives. Then you've got um, layer five and six. Layer five would be um, uh, Bitcoin products like uh, Open Dime, like uh, uh, any hardware wallet or, or, or something like Open Dime, which is even more than a hardware wallet, products, hardware devices with the protocol, either the Lightning protocol or the underlying Bitcoin protocol built into it. Those are products. You know, you, you could think about the simplistic products like Open Dime. I have like $1,000 hanging on a necklace. I give it to you. You have $1,000. Well, that's interesting, but when it becomes $100,000, it becomes very interesting. When it becomes $100,000 locked up for the next 25 years, subject to you know, some multi-signature conditions, that becomes unique. Um, 
Well, how about this for unique? People aren't very creative, but I, I think that when you, if you're going to do technology, my advice is, well, you want to read science fiction, but you also want to read fantasy. Go back and read all the fantasy novels. That's the theme of, of the mobile wave, right? You know, when you read Elmic, Elric of Manibane, or you'd play Dungeons and Dragons, and you combine that with everything that Heinlein Clark and Asimov wrote, and then you kind of have the best of all worlds. So what's an example? A magic mirror. I'm staring at one right now, right? We have a magic mirror brought to life by a Zoom, all right? Like mirror, isn't that kind of amazing? You know, when did that instantiate? Well, I mean, the entire world adopted it March of 2020. Before that, it was like, you know, people are skeptical today. People aren't so skeptical. What about a magic car that drives itself forever? Okay, well, if I take a Tesla... And if I put a Bitcoin in the Tesla, what if I sell you a car with a Bitcoin embedded in the car, right? And, and now the natural yield on the Bitcoin, if I put $20,000 of Bitcoin or, or let's say $50,000 of Bitcoin into a car that costs $50,000, maybe the car pays for its electricity and its maintenance forever. It's a, it's a perpetual car. Right Are now, you saying it, the energy, you're saying basically by earning through the Bitcoin, is that what you mean? Yeah, you know, like what I mean is, what if I actually sold you a watch or sold you a car that had money embedded in it? Let me give you a, a, another idea. I give you a watch, I put enough Bitcoin in it that the watch generates the equivalent of uh, $100,000 a year increasing with the Bitcoin economy. It's a perpetual watch that makes you rich forever. You just have to wear it. You understand what I'm saying? I like so that like, idea. Like if you're, if you're Sign not, me up, man. <laughs> now you're not create, if you're not creative, you're like, okay, well, I need a, how do I make a, a car run forever? Well, I have to put a battery in the car that holds enough energy to make the car run for a hundred years. Well, there is no such battery right? Batteries lose 2% of their energy a month at best, right? So the energy loss in a battery is 24% a year. The half-life of energy in a battery is at best is three years, maybe one year, okay? What's the half-life of energy in Bitcoin? Well, it's forever, you see? So if I put the energy, if I take the electricity that I would use to run the car for 100 years and I put it in the car, I'm going to lose it because of uh, depreciation, uh, de de uh, depletion. But if I take the same energy and I sell it to the grid, take the money, buy the Bitcoin, attach the Bitcoin to a chip in the Tesla or in the car, the car will run itself forever. Okay, like where this is this is a product. Now, it's a kind of a bizarre idea, right? Energy embedded in a car that causes that, that makes the car self-charging for a hundred years, right? Or at least for free. But you what if you applied it to a life insurance policy? Right. So you want to buy life insurance. You give me money and I invested in what bonds that yield 3% interest in the face of 8% inflation. That's a crappy life insurance policy. So what if you give me money and I invest the money in Bitcoin? Right. Uh, what can I do with that? Well, I can either pay you 10x as much money on the back end of the policy or I can cut that premium by a factor of five. So, so uh, layer five is is uh, products with digital energy embedded in them. 
And layer six is services with digital energy embedded in them and like an insurance policy. Okay, so now you're asking, what's the killer app? Well, I mean, I, I can't be sure what the killer app, because, I mean, it seems like life insurance, which is 10 times better as a killer app. It seems like a bond portfolio where, you know, fixed income portfolio that is 10x better than existing bonds. That might be a killer app. If you live, um, I think it depends on where you live. For example, um, if you look at uh, what's going on right now in Argentina, the currency's collapsed by 50% in 12 months. The blue dollar rate is 270 pesos to the dollar, and it was 15 pesos to the dollar four years ago. In that case, the killer app is, is like the ability to maintain digital property on your phone and self-custody it so you don't get poor. And I think that there are already calls for them to dollarize, right? Uh, but I think a, heart, a wallet, a, a wallet you can trust that will hold uh, a large supply of, of currency like do dollars and property like Bitcoin, that's a killer app for 8 billion people. So I think the obvious thing to do would be for Apple, Google, or Facebook to build that wallet into their device. And probably Apple is the company that could build it most effectively because Apple already has a secure element in the phone and they control all the entire chip stack of the iPhone. And if you want to create something which is really safe and easy to use that people trust, you kind of have to control the silicon layer, the operating system layer, and the application layer, and the cloud layer. And Apple has those. The closest company to competing with them is, say, Google. But Google doesn't control the hardware and the chipsets to the, to the degree that Apple does. So it's like a Google Samsung production. And then, I mean, Facebook, they could become, uh, I mean, this could be a strategy for them, but they kind of like have gone the opposite direction. Instead of actually building Bitcoin into Novi and giving it to a billion people, which they, they probably should have done, they kind of, you know, tried to create their own currency with Libra and it crashed and burned and then they shut down Novi and gave up. Oops, not good. But I, I, so I, I think that the obvious application is a digital wallet for 8 billion people where you can hold uh, a, a currency and a property, right? What, what currency do they want? They all want the dollar. They don't want pesos. They don't want Nyara. They don't want CNY. They don't. If you look at all the currencies uh, that, are, uh, that are currently circulated right now, this year, the pound's down 14%, the euro's down 16%, the Polish Lottie's down 22%, the yen's down 23%, the Turkish lira's down 60%, right? Every currency outside the United States is crashing. So the near-term inflation hedge is you swap out your local currency for dollar, indisputable. Every single person in the world knows that. The long-term inflation hedge is you swap out, swap out your weak property for strong property. Like, like you don't want to own uh, a rental apartment building in Istanbul. You want to own the, the equivalent amount of Bitcoin, right? Because at some point, if the, if the, if the economy of Argentina or Turkey crashes, 
then the value of your rental property in Argentina and Turkey will also crash, right? They're derivatives. So that's the killer app. I mean, everything else is an opportunity, right? And, and as for who's going to ship the killer app, is it Google? Google's got more reach, but a weaker stack. Is it Apple? They've got the best stack, lesser reach, but, but best stack. Is it Facebook? They've got reach, but you know, slightly weaker. Who needs it the most? Facebook needs it the most by far, right? And what's going to happen if neither none of the big three do it? Well, then it's an opportunity. I mean, for, you know, Block is going gonna, is gonna to chase it. PayPal will chase it. The payment guys, you know, maybe Microsoft or Amazon jumps into the, into the fray or some other dark horse. Otherwise, the entrepreneurs in the crypto industry will, uh, will step up. Uh, Michael, just to, just to build on what you just said there, I, I like the example you said about Argentina and uh, in the short run, you, you mentioned people should be essentially using dollars to, you know, to essentially be in a stable place. Uh, but longer term, Bitcoin for you is is the replacement for that. Um, I guess that to play devil's advocate for people on the other side, a lot of people asked us questions like this when we asked uh, listeners what we should ask you. And that, that sounded like a store of value kind of use case to me, what you just said. And, you know, we've, we've used the meme of um, digital gold in the last few years has been, has been very prominent for Bitcoin as well. Um, but as we know, in the last, you know, six to 12 months, well, six months or so, Bitcoin's value is down, is it like 70%? Uh, and a lot of the other crypto assets are down even, even more than that. So what would you say to someone who says, well, why don't we just continue to use a digital stable coin like a USDC or whatever else might be out there? And yes, we've got, you know, eight, 10% inflation or more, but that's better than a 70% drop right now. And at least I kind of know what I'm going to be paying for uh, a loaf of bread tomorrow in Venezuela. Yeah, so I think that you got to think of money as a currency component and a property component. And the currency is the medium of exchange you, that you're going to use to pay your day-to-day -day bills. And that's a government monopoly. Every place there's a nation state, they're going to control the currency. And then the property is your long-term store of value, right? Whether it's your ranch, or it's your collectibles, or whether it's your company stock, or whether it's Bitcoin. Uh, the cutoff, the, the clear theoretical cutoff, I think is four years. Like you want a safe, uh, a really safe cutoff. Look at the four-year moving average of Bitcoin. If you have money that you can afford to put away and hold for more than four years, you're, you would be foolish to store it in a currency. Like even the strongest currency world, the, do the dollar is the strongest currency in the world, but you would be foolish to store money for more than four years in the dollar. So I think that you look out and you say, well, stuff I've got that I want to hold for four to 40 years, I have to put in a property portfolio. And we're just going to debate whether you should buy a building, buy a company, buy a Bitcoin, buy a bunch of you know, art, right? That's another story. For less than four years, maybe you want a currency. I, you know, I would think that you know, I would normally keep currency for one to two years, conservative two years. Uh, two to four years is being almost too conservative, but you, know, you want to be really conservative, you could keep four years of cash. Now, what would I say to people that said, why not use currency? Well, first, I would say if you live in Lebanon or Turkey or Argentina or Venezuela or anywhere in Africa, 
or most places in Asia, you don't have the option to use the dollar. And so you're, it's the wrong comparison. It's not a comparison of Bitcoin versus the dollar for the next four years. It's a comparison of Bitcoin versus the Turkish lira or Bitcoin versus the Venezuelan Bolivar or Bitcoin, you know, go, go Google blue dollar and check the block market rate of, um, of the current um, Bolivar, or sorry, the current peso right now. And uh, I'll do it just for our benefit. Blue dollar and formal rate 267. Okay. And you look at the chart and you roll the clock back to 2017. It was 18. Okay. So what would I say to that person? I would say uh, in the last five years, you have lost 95% of your wealth holding currency. Okay. You're like, well, why can't they just all buy dollars? Well, because it's illegal to buy the dollars. Go, ch go check the, the formal rate. The formal bank rate is 127 pesos to the dollar. The actual rate is 270. What's the difference? The difference is the bank won't sell you the dollars. That's why it's cheap, right? So Bitcoin is an option for uh, for anybody in the world that lives in a nation where they can't trust the bank or they can't trust the local currency. And that's the killer app for them. In that case, this is common sense, right? If I told you the currency was going to collapse in a month and you lived in Venezuela, you know, you would keep three days worth of cash in the Bolivar. You would keep a month worth of cash in the peso you would keep a year worth of cash in the dollar and you would keep the rest of the money that you owned in property. Go buy a car, go buy something. I, Cause I'm telling you, right. That, that whatever, whatever you bought, if you bought a hundred houses five years ago, 95 of the hundred are getting burned and you'll have five houses in five years. It's, it's not complicated. So um, I think that, the problem with all the currencies over the long term is the best currency in the world is going to lose 99.9% of its value on 100 years. The best. The dollar is going to lose 99.9% .9 of its value over 100 years. Okay, so it's really just a question of what is your time frame. And uh, if you look at the monetary inflation rate, you know, in a good year for 90, for 90 years on average before 2020, it was 7% a year in the dollar, 14% a year in the developing world. And that's not, this is not, uh, you know, controversial, you know, go study the history of currency collapses in Argentina, in Mexico, in Africa, and Russian's currency collapsed in 98, they all collapse. So go study them and you'll realize that. So most currencies are losing 15% of their value a year and the dollar is losing 8% of its value a year. But in 2020, we stamped down on the accelerator and the dollar started losing 16% or more of its value, actually 20% of its value a year for two years running. If you look at the M2 money supply, and that means everybody else started losing double that. And that's why you have riots in Sri Lanka right now. Right. That's why you have riots in Argentina. That's why you have a collapse in all sorts of places, because 
the currency's losing uh, when it's weak, it's losing forty percent of its value a year. When it's strong, it's losing fifteen to twenty percent of its value a year. And the only reason that you're not panicked in the U.S. is because the CPI is manipulated to create the lowest possible inflation number, right? Which is you know the lowest number they can that they can possibly create is like eight percent right now. But you don't got to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the rate uh, at which stuff you need to buy is going up in price is more than 8%, right? Energy, food, you know, I, I, have, uh, I have friends, they run all sorts of normal real world companies. They go, yeah, like uh, everything that, everything we used to buy 24 months ago is 50% more expensive now. And we passed the price increase on to all of our customers and they accepted it. And that's in the U.S. But in Sri Lanka, you, do you guys know what happened in Sri Lanka this weekend? Yeah, so yeah, some of the videos. The craziest crazy uh, timeline stuff. when you search and, it. And you, and you know what caused the riots where they deposed the entire government? What was the breaking point? It was, well, they're running 60%, 70% inflation. That they, if the government admits, admits 70% inflation, that means it's probably double, right? Start, start from that. But- Here's the, here's the breaking point. The government put out an edict saying that private citizens are not allowed to buy gasoline. That's how they're going to stop the price going up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if you want to crash an economy, how do you do it? Well, you lock down the economy, right? Put everybody under home arrest and that will crash an economy. But the other way to crash an economy is I just tell you, you're not allowed to drive a car. You can't go anywhere and you can't do anything. Okay, so, I mean, it's, I'm sure that someone that came with the idea thought it was prudent. But of course, at the end of the day, if you print so much money, I think they were also modern monetary theorists and they had the idea you could print money. You, you cannot, the people that think you can print money are the people that don't understand conservation of energy. Right, you, you you can't print infinite money if you have finite energy. Right, the price of everything, you know, escalates exponentially, and it's pretty obvious that in this case, if uh, if we as if we shut down the economy, if I want to crash the economy, I cut output in half by telling people they can't work, they shouldn't work, and they should be afraid to work. Right, or I don't let them work. Then I close off the borders, right? By shutting down the shipping lines, raising tariffs and shutting down all the, uh, the air transport. And then I double the money supply. Because what I've done is I've just basically doubled the money supply, cut the output in half. Prices have to go up by a factor of four. And then I deny that they've gone up by a factor of four. And then stuff starts breaking. Michael, Michael I had a question. Oh, go Sorry, on, go I had on, a Frank. quick question related to that was, so you've seen, for example, the Sri Lanka example is a great, um, not necessarily a, a, a use case necessarily for Bitcoin, but the idea of like you're seeing these things happen and, and you're, you're mentioning well, the, Turkey. The use case is if you live in Sri Lanka and you, and you had money in a bank, you've lost it all. You're going right. to lose it all. And if you have money and property in Sri Lanka, it's kind of hard to rent your property or Airbnb it out when the government makes it a, illegal for tourists to show up. Right. So it is, so it is a good example. A of that. Yeah, yeah. It's how right. you avoid starving to death if right. you live in a, in a uh, economy that is mismanaged. So the reason I brought that up is uh, 
when you see that happen, you're like, okay, well, there is very clear use case for Bitcoin. The question I have is kind of reverse. And you talked about studying something, 10,000 hours, knowing it yeah. front to back. And you've done that with Bitcoin. So the question I had was, what would make you believe that your thesis on Bitcoin was incorrect? Like, is there something, an event, like a single type of event where you'd be like, okay, this is actually making me question my conviction. If I saw something better. Okay. It's like, you know, if you invent a fusion reactor that can run a Tesla on a sugar cube for a hundred years, <laughs> and you ask me whether I would buy that instead of the Tesla, all other things being equal, I think I like the car with the fusion motor or the atomic overthruster. I just haven't okay. seen it. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, Bitcoin at its core is more of an ideology. The ideology is let's implement conservation of energy in cyberspace via a protocol which is fair and equitable. They have done that, right? So can someone implement a, you know, and every other thing that competes with it isn't a fair and equitable protocol for implementing conservation of energy in cyberspace. It's something different, right? When you start inflating the supply of the tokens by 5%, or when you have a foundation or an issuer, an ICO or an investment contract, and it's proprietary, or you keep hard forking and hard forking, right? That's not conservation of energy via an open permissionless protocol in cyberspace. It's something different. The things that are closest to Bitcoin, right? Where the Bitcoin forks, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, and if you look at Bitcoin Cash, it has collapsed by 99.5%, right? It's now like 50 basis points of Bitcoin. So, the, and I would say Bitcoin Cash, right, is probably the closest thing to Bitcoin that was supposed to be an improvement. Obviously not. So, I, you know, I think that the most important point here is somebody invented mathematics and we were living without mathematics. And now you've got mathematics base 10, and you can design planes and trains and automobiles and electric, electric power plants and radios and modern technology, and you can fly to the moon with mathematics. Now, are you going to quibble with me over whether the math should be base 10 or base 8 or base 4? Like Isaac Newton wrote Principia Mathematica, and it was pretty much all the math that 99.99% of the people will ever need or know in their life. There, it's done, right? 200 years ago, it's pretty good. And now if entrepreneurs keep launching base eight math and base 16 math and base four math and base 32 math, and they come up with all these other, uh, we don't want our Arabic numerals anymore. We want Roman numerals, or we want like the Cylon warrior numerals. Yeah, they're all different forms of math, but the question is, is this good enough? And the answer is, it's good enough. If you can create nuclear weapons with it, and you can create Teslas with it, and you can create airplanes with it, it's, and create bridges with it, and create skyscrapers with it, it's good enough. So at some point, all of the tinkering trying to reinvent the wheel is dysfunctional, I think most of the people in the crypto industry, they keep trying to reinvent the wheel because there's some measure of ignorance and arrogance right, and greed. They kind of want to get rich. But if you're greedy, a better way to get rich is build an application on top of Bitcoin using the token. It's like all the people that want to reinvent the iOS, which is not going to happen. 
right? It's not going to happen. How about build an app on top of the iOS? Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to do something new. And in this case, I just think a lot of energy is wasted, either worrying, uh, like like people come up with all these pro all these creative possible scenarios under which Bitcoin might be in trouble so that they can justify their shit coin. It's like, I have a quantum resistant shit coin. And do you know that theoretically I can imagine blah, blah, blah. It's like, this is, this is the, it's just silly, ridiculous stuff, but it goes on and it's, it's an incredible waste of energy. It's like you're wasting your life. And, um, and, and if it, if it causes you to veer into, the practice of issuing your own unregistered security, it takes you to a, down a dark, unethical path too. Like it's illegal, it's unethical, and it's also stupid waste of time. So like, I think it's worthwhile to consider carefully, right? And defend the network, think about the network. But for the most part, the, the creativity that's going to increase the ecosystem, the economy by a factor of 100, is mostly going to take place on layers two, three, four, five, and six. Bitcoin at layer one, it's it's good enough. It's good enough to be a hundred trillion dollar base layer. It's good enough to be two hundred x bigger than it's. It's good enough to be a five hundred trillion dollar base layer, right? That's not the part that needs fixing. That that's the base ten math. At this point, everybody ought to be working on applications, derivatives, services other protocols, and they ought to stop trying to reinvent the wheel. I mean, it's just, it's just not very productive, right? Why, why do you think that that talent hasn't been attracted to the Bitcoin ecosystem? Like, why don't you think, why is there not like a flourishing, like crazy effort to build applications on top of Bitcoin in the same way you see in other parts of crypto, at least um, at their more... Yeah, well, in I, th- the I, th- I think culture, at least. I think that the rest of crypto takes a shortcut, right? The shortcut is issuing an unregistered security. So, so um, there there really isn't an example that I can think of of um, any kind of smart contract network or proof of stake or crypto network that competes with Bitcoin that didn't take the shortcut of an unregistered security. They're not decentralized, so. All of, all of the legitimate talent is working on top of the Bitcoin ecosystem, and they are there, right? If you're honest and ethical and competent, you're building stuff on Lightning or you're building an application, right? That's, you, you can't, uh, and so it is going on. The thing that, uh, like Cash App is an example of an application. The truth of the matter is like any exchange trading Bitcoin is an example of an application, right? Um, MicroStrategy is an application. It's a derivative of Bitcoin, right? We put $4 billion into it. So you could say, well, why aren't people doing things? They are doing things. GBTC is a, is a thing. Um, I think that the reason um, you didn't see so many uh, sexy applications is because um, we're waiting for a lightning uh, to harden. And, and the lightning protocol is has taken a few years for it to mature. I would say year one of lightning was 2021. 
so the the protocol to grow up, we're kind of in year two, and I think you'll see an explosion of really cool applications built on the Lightning protocol, right? Because Lightning reduced the cost to move Bitcoin by a factor of 100,000 or something. It increased scalability by 100,000. But the, the vision has been there. I think the most of the other stuff is just shortcuts. The problem with the shortcut is, is um, ultimately... You, you can get away with it, but you live at the pleasure of the regulators, right? If, if you're selling an unregistered security to the general public and you haven't taken and you haven't issued a registration statement, right? It's, it's non-compliant, which means you're only going to exist until someone takes a look at it and then the legal system is going to shut you down. So um, a lot of energy has been, pour, been poured into these other applications, I think, by entrepreneurs that don't really understand the law. Or don't want to understand the law, like uh, the, like it's like I just want to intentionally be ignorant. But if you look at people that understand the law and understand the ethics, they're the ones that started thinking about lightning. How many years ago? 2017, 2016, right? So they've been working on lightning. They've been working on on the Bitcoin uh, layer. They they've been working on the derivatives like grayscale. They've been working on uh, on exchanges to trade Bitcoin. They've been working on hardware wallets, you know, open dime, custody solutions, multi-signature solutions. The reason that that hasn't been as lucrative is there's nothing more lucrative than selling an unregistered security to the retail public. That's, it's just illegal and unethical. It's lucrative, but that's the dilemma, right? If I'm willing to break the law in an unethical way, then... Yeah, I can get it finance. It's just, there's nothing right about it. Like a Luna, right? You generate $50 billion of tokens and you had, you know, and you gen up the token and you have a billion dollars, you know, at some point when you're manipulating your unregistered security, you know, offshore, you know, and dumping it on the general public, what could go wrong? It's pretty obvious that you can generate. If I wanted to generate a, a $10 billion market cap, right? I just, I issue a token. I, I put 1% in the float and then I just buy the 1% of the float and then I publish it. And then I tell everybody that's a $10 billion market cap. That's what it looks like. So, well, you know, Michael, then, can then I if just... I give it to you, right? If I give it to you mm. and, and I get you to promote my NFT or my something, then I basically used an unregistered security stock offering without disclosure to pump the underlying network. It's highly unethical, but it has been going on. And so like, that's, that's why it happens. There's your, your choices. You, you do, you do the ethical legal thing and it's not that lucrative. You do the unethical non-compliant thing. It looks, looks lucrative, but you've got a long tail of liability that will be coming at you for the next decade of lawsuits and actions and the like. So, Michael, can we just talk specifically about Ethereum? Because I think we're talking about layer twos and we're talking about kind of this big bucket of, of uh, like Bitcoin and everything else. Right. And I, I definitely agree with you on the, the fact that Bitcoin is the OG, is the original. You know, that is the innovation that has set up this whole industry. Um, but I, I would say to on Ethereum side, I wouldn't even group Ethereum with, you know, I think Luna is its own thing. I think Solana is its own thing. Uh, of course, there might be some parallels between them as well. But I'm curious to get your take on Ethereum's, 
on Ethereum specifically because I think you were you, you were really, mentioning you really yeah, want to open on. this can of worms. <laughs> well, I, I just think like that would be the the other side, right? I'm just trying to give a fair <laughs> the, the uh, discussion. Here. Yeah. Okay. Well, fine. I I tell you. I mean, if you want to know, look the the issue with uh, with ETH is. If you want a decentralized network, you have to actually install a protocol and it has to run unmolested, you know, unmodified for five to 10 years before you can conclude that it is decentralized and censorship resistant. And ETH hasn't even got there yet. The clock on ETH won't start until after... The problem with ETH is after the merge, they've still left all sorts of questions. What's the issuance schedule going to be for the next thousand years? You know, what's, you know, what are the staking rules? What are the, you know, there's, there's so much, there's such an ambitious technology agenda that the protocol never stops mutating. And the problem with an ever mutating DNA structure is you generally end up with a monstrosity. Right, you you can't keep mutating the protocol for obvious reasons. So ETH isn't really something that you could have an opinion on yet, because they haven't stopped mutating it. If you ha if I had to have an opinion on what I see in front of me, what you see is this is this is something that was sold as an ICO to the public. The ETH Foundation, Ethereum Foundation controls it. It's an investment contract. Right. It's been hard forked multiple times. And the hard forks aren't just hard forks to fix the fatal bug. They're hard forks that change the underlying monetary protocol. And the protocol keeps materially changing and it is never stabilized. Right now, you've got an ETH mining, uh, an ETH mining constituency. And every, you know, every year for the past five years, they've had a difficulty bomb to destroy it and they keep putting it off. Well, who's they? The miners don't want to destroy themselves. So who's controlling the network? Not the miners, right? There's a small group of developers that control what the network is. And that's a company. It's a software company. And ETH is an equity. And they've sold it to the general public. And they keep changing the protocol. Hard forks are just software upgrades that are mandatory. So it's not a decentralized network. It's not a commodity. There's no reasonable person that understands the law or ethics could conclude that, that Ethereum is a commodity, right? You can't. Gary Gensler doesn't think it's a commodity. You can read his videos on it, right? Uh, it, does, it passes the Howey test as an investment contract. The question you got to ask yourself is who makes the decisions and what's the basis they make the decision, right? It's... It doesn't help to vote on these things either, by the way. Like if you vote on them, uh, companies vote on things. If the shareholders get a vote, that makes it a security, right? The only way to establish a commodity in cyberspace is someone has to, has to follow Satoshi's example. The example is you create the software, you give it to the world with no economic motive, right? And the protocol is set forever and no one changes it. So if you're going to like, if you're going to change it, like you could, you could justify fixing a bug, but if someone hard forked Bitcoin to be 42 million coins instead of 21 million coins, or they hard forked it to change the issuance schedule, right? All of a sudden 
you you've centralized it. You reset the clock. It looks like a, it looks like something which is controlled by an entity. And now you have to wait a decade to figure out whether or not it's stabilized. And so I think the real issue with ETH is a decade after they finish changing it and screwing with it, you can have an opinion on it. But it doesn't look to me like they'll stop hard forking it for the next three years. Like, like the plan is to keep hard forking and hard forking. I'll give you a question. You stake your ETH. Okay, well, what's the yield schedule on the staked ETH for the next decade? And then when can you get your staked ETH out? I don't know the answer to that, but I, I guess the but you know question- what? Nobody, oh, knows it. Nobody knows the answer to that. Yeah, there is fair. no answer to that. No, so here's the problem. <laughs> Right? If it's you not like to, you're saying there is no second best, Michael. <laughs> what I'm saying is you have to go back to first principles when you design a digital commodity. It needs to be a protocol that, uh, that is like you, the Bitcoin protocol determines the amount of Bitcoin and the way it's issued and the way the network works for the next thousand years. And that protocol was established on Pizza Day when it traded for nothing. And it hasn't changed. Right, so like some small change to make it more uh, make it more secure, maybe, but you can't keep changing the protocol. That's the problem. If you change the protocol, then you probably instantiated a security, and uh, and now the problem is, if it's a security, you're trading it illegally, right, on unregistered exchanges without a license to trade a security, and you haven't disclosed all the risk factors on the security. So it doesn't work as money, right? It's something different. If you want to create a software company and sell equity, then you do it pursuant to an IPO. Google did it. MicroStrategy did it. Microsoft did it. Oracle did it. There's an ethical way to do it. But it's, it's, it's not ethical and it's not legal to sell equity to the general public without a registration statement and without disclosing the risk factors. And it's not black and white. I mean, it's, there's no gray here. I mean, it's, I wish there was gray, but I mean, I don't see how anybody could look at it as being anywhere gray. I mean, if you actually take an objective view toward it, it just, it just happened to be extremely diff, uh, diffused in the world. There's a lot of people with it. They've got that going for them. Michael, would you not say, though, that the very nature of technology is that it evolves and changes? And I think the way you're describing you know, Bitcoin as a protocol obviously is a different frame for what people might describe the Ethereum network or something like that as a, something that is building a technology stack for real use cases. And you could argue that a lot of the interesting things that have happened in cryptocurrency from DeFi to NFTs to, you know, all sorts of uh, things that have been built in the last few years, a lot of those have been done on something like Ethereum. And, uh, you know, it looks like Bitcoin, you know, people on the Lightning Network will replicate some of those things now. Yeah. And in your opinion, with a better base layer. But, uh, you know, so a lot of things. So what's the question? The question is that with a lot of, <laughs> yeah, a lot of, with a lot of technologies, you do, there is no law for them because they're their own thing, right? So when Airbnb starts or Uber starts, we're all saying, why would you go into a random person's house? Why would you go into a random person's car, etc.?" And it takes time for regulators to catch up with that. So, my, and I'm not saying this is the case, but as a technologist, first and foremost, which you are, would you not say that is the very nature? Like the law normally plays catch up with new things. Well, you've got a technical issue, you've got an economic issue, and you've got an ethical issue. 
So if you look at the ethical issue, the ethics are it's an unregistered security and it's unethical. Right. So so a lot of people that have an objection, they just object to the fact that it's unethical. Right. It's unethical to murder the entire ETH mining industry just because you want to. Right. It's just not right. And uh, and it's unethical to sell something as commodity if it's secured. So that's the first issue. Uh, the second issue is which is economic. Is it economically sound? The problem with that is is it's not economically sound because you don't have an issuance schedule and a protocol that's set in stone for the next thousand years. You do with Bitcoin, you've got, a, you've got block issuance out to 2140 and you've got a transaction fee model that will just go on and, and it's not changeable. No one thinks they can change it. So you've got an economically sound protocol. With ETH, it's not, you know, you can't make a hundred year bet or even a 10-year bet. I mean, the protocol changes every year. Like every time you hard fork, you change, and it's not just there's a precedent for hard forks. There's a precedence for hard forks that make materially different changes to the monetary protocol. It keeps radically changing. And, and it means there's a small group of people that are going to make something up, and they'll just keep making it up. And they haven't made up what they want it to be yet. Again, like what's the issuance schedule for the next 100 years? You don't know. That's because no one's made it up yet. So economically, it is not sound. And then technically, technically, it's just too ambitious. The problem with the smart, you know, it's cool, but there's like billions and billions of dollars of hacks. I mean, starting with the, you could see the writing on the wall. Have you guys read the Cryptopians? You should read the Cryptopians, right? It's the entire story, right? I mean, the, the network was hacked within uh, you know, a short period of time after it was launched. And then it was hard forked, right? In an ethical lapse. And, it's, and that's that difficulty bomb plus a, a, plus a pattern of hard forks continues to this day. So, you know, it, it seems to me that if you look at the entire industry right now, yeah, the smart contract things are interesting, but they're just not technically sound. Right? I mean, like, like the Axie Infinity hack, how many, how many hacks have there been? $15 billion worth of hacks over two years or something. So I, if your point is, yeah, this is interesting technology and it's inspired people, yeah. If your point is because it's interesting technology, you should invest in it or it should be allowed. Well, yeah, I think people should be allowed to experiment with technology, but you know, like if you go back to the Wolf of Wall Street, just because you have an interesting idea doesn't mean you can run a boiler room pump and dump scheme and defraud the general public just because it's a cool business, right? There's a distinction between whether the business has value and whether or not the way you raise money is appropriate. So, you know, I... I think that uh, the world's full of technology companies that are innovating right now. There's a lot of private companies. There's a lot of public companies. There's a lot of people building stuff on different protocols. If you ask me to, to sift through the crypto industry and say what's valuable, well, what's valuable is the idea of a stable coin. Clearly, the world wants trillions of dollars of digital currency in the form of the US dollar or the digital euro, et cetera. That's valuable. What's valuable is digital property, which is what Bitcoin is. The establishment of a non uh, of a open 
an open uh, censorship resistant digital commodity with a protocol that is universally understood, right? Um, that is not got an issuer that fails the Howey test, that is not an investment contract. That is an innovation. That is Satoshi's innovation, right? Um, and uh, so that's the second thing that's valuable. I think the third thing that's valuable is being is crypt, uh, the ability to move crypto assets point peer to peer, right? Instantly for free. I think 24 7, 365 trading is valuable. And I think the idea of, of tokenizing, uh, tokenizing things, tokens, they're interesting, they're valuable. NFTs are tokens, they're valuable, right? So ultimately, all those things will probably find their way into the ecosystem. But just because, just because those things are valuable doesn't justify anybody buying any random token or any random coin, right? Right. That's a yeah. different thing entirely. Right. It's, it's like when Instagram came out or Amazon came out, the entire world was full of uh, promoters and they're all saying, Hey, I found the Amazon, you know, of the UK or the Amazon of women's shoes or the Amazon of, of cat toys. And of course, the point is Amazon is going to be the Amazon of all those things. And so everybody's raising money, just like everybody raised money to be the next Instagram. Well, for like every one Instagram, there's like 10,000 failed companies. So I think that uh, it's clear there's 20,000 cryptos. There's going to be a 99% failure rate, if not a 99.9% .9 failure rate. Some stuff will rise. Well, like if, if, if you want to actually build a business moving money around, you're going to have to be good at working out the compliance issues, right? I mean, if you're going to move money around, if it's, if it's property, then you have to have a sound economic basis and a sound, a sound uh, ethical basis, right? You can't use securities to, securities will not work as property for a hundred years. And if you want to move currency around, you have to have a sound legal eth ethical basis for the currency. And that means you're going to have to also apply you're going to have to comply with KYC, AML rules. You're a bank for all practical purposes, right? And so anybody in that business, you're going to, ha you're going to have to solve those compliance issues. And, and I think that um, most of the crypto industry, it, was, it just went fast, broke things, lacking adult supervision, right? Very entrepreneurial. And that works until it doesn't work anymore. And right, it's pretty clear it's not working anymore. Right. And the next decade, you're going to have to have lawyers and accountants. Right? I mean, people are saying, well, I guess, I guess, you know, Celsius should have disclosed what they were doing. You know who discloses what they're doing? Publicly traded companies. You know why? Because it's a legal requirement to sell your stock to the general public. You know, so, I mean, go read my disclosures, read MSTR, SEC filings. It's hundreds of pages of disclosures and risk factors, right? And then, you know, you look at all these, the crypto wildcat banks, and they were pretty much running unregulated hedge funds, making massive bets, massive loans, undisclosed, taking in retail money deposits, and then they implode and they lose all the money. What could go wrong, <laughs> right? The, I mean, the answer is 
the industry's got to grow up. Yeah. Right. And the industry is going to grow up, right. One way or the other, the regulators are behind, but, uh, but at the end of the day, just keep in mind the basis of securities laws are biblical. They go back thousands of years. They, I mean, Hammurabi's code even. And the basis of securities laws are thou shalt not lie, cheat, or steal. That's the basis of the law. So saying these are antiquated laws from 1933 that don't apply to crypto that's kind of a it's, a, it's a dead on arrival argument. The law is don't lie, cheat, or steal. It's just instantiated in different years and different places. And so the future of the industry is going to have to be based on an ethical foundation, an ethically sound foundation, a technically sound foundation, and an economically sound foundation. And as you can tell, right, I think Bitcoin is economically, technically, and ethically sound. You've, you've got a million reasons why. We could talk about it for thousands of hours. If you want to build a business in this industry, you need to be inspired by those, those three principles. And the simple thing to do is just use Bitcoin as your token and then build on top of that <laughs> of that uh, monetary protocol and on top of that monetary asset. But if you're not going to do that, you definitely have to think long and hard about the economic, ethical, and technical implications of what you're doing. Sure. Trung, did you have a question there? I saw you unmute. Did uh, either of yeah, you have a question? I had it. Well, I know we're coming up on time here, Michael. I uh, really appreciate that answer. And allow insisting to push on it. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> the last question I had was uh, on my side was for a young 22 year old grad coming out of school right now, what would you say to them for their professional career? Um, I, obviously you like uh, Bitcoin is very important. It has become your life's work. How would you uh, coach somebody starting their career? I think um, the world's increasingly specialized and it's platform driven. So you need to focus on, um, first you need a basic set of skills. The, ba the basic tools you need to get by in the modern world would be English, uh, important, <laughs> the ability to code, right? Uh, some computer science or uh, be computer literate, be, uh, be English literate because Anything you sell in the world will sell for a higher price in English. Anything you buy, you'll buy for a lower price in English. So it's a universal protocol. So master that protocol. Obviously, master math as a protocol, but especially, especially um, applied statistics. Uh, for example, if you have a complicated um, theoretical math problem, you can generally plug it into a computer or you apply, you know, you can, you can have uh, programs that'll solve calculus and calculus of variations and those forms of math. But the kind of math that you use every single day of your life is applied statistics. Like for example, what's the likelihood that coin is going to zero? <laughs> How much risk is in the protocol? If I change the protocol every year, what's the risk that that will actually blow up in my face. So you have to be able to assess risk all the time. So that's statistics, especially applied statistics. So, so I would study that. I would study coding. I would study English. Then, I, then master the key platforms. 
right? You can, you can create music or you can create something, but if it's not on the big platforms, you know, if you don't understand YouTube, it doesn't matter that you posted your video on the number four most important streaming video service. No one's going there. So figure out Google and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. If you're going to, if you're going to do anything that matters. So then after you've got those skills, you know, they're all protocols of sorts, right? Thinking skills. And then you've got to be able to create something, right? What, what that something is uh, depends on what your talent is, but you probably better, better figure out what your talent is, hone it. If you don't have talent, don't bother because someone else in the world will have it. If you have talent, focus, master the talent, then figure out how to deliver something on those platforms, you know, con compatible with those protocols. Like don't, don't sing fabulous music in Swahili on YouTube. <laughs> no one understands Swahili, right? F figure out where is the money, right? People figure out where are the people with the money and how do I communicate with them and how do I serve them? And you, then you do that thing with the awareness that, the world is increasingly uh, global interconnected and, and um, there's a winner take all type environment where, where uh, the number one gets, you know, most of the market, the number two gets a little bit, the number three gets noticed and the numbers four through 40,000 are the long tail of mediocrity. So figure that out, make your career there. And then, and then, uh, if you come back to the metaphor of laser eyes, the whole po the whole point of laser eyes is yes, you have a hundred opinions, but the world only cares about one. <laughs> yes, you can do a hundred things, but the world only wants to pay you to do one thing, <laughs> right? And and once you do that one thing, if you have a modicum of success, and you start thinking that you can do a second, a third, and a fourth thing, you're wrong. You can't, right? Because when you're, when you're the most successful person in your niche and you're doing the one thing, there's someone that's smarter than you, more talented than you, that has more to gain, less, than, less to lose, that wants to replace you. And they're thinking about that 80 hours a week. And you're deciding to put your thing on autopilot and move on to conquer some new thing because you know, that's what you know, alpha males do. When you think about that, you just remember what happened to Napoleon when he charged into Russia and then Hitler when he charged into Russia and then Napoleon when he charged into Egypt and then Julius Caesar when he fought charged into Egypt. It's like people reach too far, right? And then it slips from their grasp because you have to run as hard as you can with 150% focus in order to keep your position in a world that is continually wanting to squeeze you out and it won't miss you. Mm. That was great. That sounded, no, like great. Jack, you, Jack, sounded like Jack, your, your last few year um, Twitter business strategy was yeah. summarized by Michael there. Yeah. I, I, uh, I watch you on up only Michael and you like a version of that advice is a, deeply resonates and is absolutely true in our experience here on the podcast and the people we've interviewed too. So thank you for, thank you thank for you summarizing that, that. You know, if the, there's a theme to all of this, the theme of Bitcoin, the theme of everything. It's, it's the thing that's wrong with the world 
is we dissipate too much energy. And the cure is stop dissipating, stop wasting energy. Mm. Right. And a laser just happens to be an example of the device that concentrates energy, you know, in optical form more effectively than anything else we can think of. And, uh, and it's a good metaphor, but generally most things that don't work, they just, they just dissipate energy, government policies that don't work. They're inefficient policies. If you think about them for a while, you think it's, it's the economy's not going to work like that. And products that dissipate energy don't work. And people, you know, you get on Twitter and you're the world's expert in chicken soup. People don't want to hear your political opinion. They want to hear about chicken soup, right? You know, if you're, if you're a really good guitar player, they want to hear you play guitar. They don't, they don't want to hear you prognosticate about something you know nothing about. Right. And, and so when you start to divert your focus, I mean, first you're first you get unfocused and then your communications get unfocused and then your audience gets confused and then you start to lose your audience. Right. And then and then even worse, you start to just turn them against you. So I would say focus, focus on on the thing and stay that way. And, you know, the average person takes four years to get an undergraduate degree. And after, you know, if you had an undergraduate degree, the consensus in the engineering world is you're not competent to actually lead the project or do anything. It's the master's degree, PhDs that they want, the postgraduate or graduate people, they want to actually do those things. So the consensus in the world is after 12 years of under, of, of, you know, secondary education and six years of college education, maybe we'll let you do something. Okay. That's 18 years to do something six years from the point that you're an adult to do something. So in the real world, figure out what you're going to do, focus on it. And if you focus on it every day for six years and you didn't get distracted, right? Maybe you've started to do something. And if you're successful, somebody else in the world's going to try to try to actually replace you. So first do something and then to defend the something that you're doing and then be grateful that you have the opportunity to do that. Well said. Um, I, have, uh, I, I don't know how much time you have. We're getting close butt. to the end. You got to get close. I was just going to ask, um, and this may not be a, an answer we can get in the time, but the, the idea of conservation of energy as a principle of Bitcoin being very like almost interpreted as the opposite in the mainstream culture. So like Bitcoin as an instrument to conserve energy, whereas, you know, a layman who is not, it doesn't have an engineering degree would, would think of Bitcoin as an instrument that consumes energy. Is it, you have a way to con like consolidate that, um, like the wrong contradiction there where people think that this thing represents spent energy versus stored energy. Well, I mean, the only people that would think that it uh, is not energy efficient are people that don't understand it. And they either don't understand it because they're completely outside of the space or uh, they don't understand it because it's in their 
uh, professional interest not to understand it, and they're competing to promote a proof-of-stake network. So most of the anti-Bitcoin energy usage narratives are actually under, they're underwritten by the proof-of-stake promoters, right? And, and that's where most of that FUD comes from. It doesn't really come from outsiders. The outsiders would look at it and say it's a data center, and you put electricity in and you spit out blocks of digital energy, blocks of Bitcoin. Um, you know, as for how do you communicate it? Uh, how do you educate people? I guess um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. You can start by calculating the energy intensity of Bitcoin and you can show that it's the most efficient uh, energy uh, user of any industrial application. If you put a billion dollars worth of energy into an airline, right, you probably get $500 million of equity out. If you put a billion dollars of energy into Bitcoin, you get $100 billion of value out. So you can compare the energy intensity, the, the input of electricity or the input of energy to the output, the value. And you can calculate that for Google, for Netflix, for American Airlines, you can calculate it for the real estate industry, the banking industry, the S&P 500, and Bitcoin is the most efficient. So if, you, if you're really analytical, that's a, that's a way to approach it. You can also just point to other metaphors, like um, how expensive is it uh, to create a cable network versus how expensive is it to move a message over the network? If you think about the, the cost to build aqueducts, uh, you know, those are water networks, the cost to move uh, to build a highway system and the cost uh, to, build, um, to build an information network or a radio network. They're all very high fixed cost, but those, that's the price you pay in order to ca calculate the energy needed to walk from New York to San Francisco over the dirt. Right. And then count and how long it takes and then calculate the energy used to roll down a highway from New York to San Francisco. And now justify the highway and say, is it justified? And the answer is, of course, it's justified. It's it's basically the input to create a superconducting network where the friction drops by a factor of 10,000. Right? Can't you drive across the entire country in like two days, three days now? 3,000 miles, I guess it's 50 hours, right? 40 to 50 hours. How long did it take in a wagon, you know, pulled by a donkey or a horse, right? Well, Bitcoin basically is the equivalent of like the superhighway versus people with horses and wagons. That's the difference. And, uh, and anybody that studies it, thinks about it, they'll, they'll see that. You can also point to other or other examples. For example, put a billion dollars of energy into a gold network 100 years ago and lose 95% of it. Put a billion dollars of energy into the US dollar and lose 99.9% .9 of it. Put a billion dollars of energy into Bitcoin, keep it all. Right? So what's it worth? Right? I, I think that anybody that just uh, that thinks about this objectively, once you, once you illustrate uh, the comparisons to a battery or gold or fiat money or any other engineering comparison, they all look at it and they say, okay, it's just another engineered system. It's just better engineered. The people that don't that that don't really want to hear that are the ones that are just pitching the idea of proof of stake. But 
proof of stake is just a software program that uh, is created by a software development team to simulate a virtual world. It's not real, it's virtual. And that, that, for that reason, it's not the same thing. It's like uh, proof of stake comparisons to proof of work are like uh, comparing a real hospital to a second life hospital. Saying like in Second Life, we didn't have to, you know, get medical degrees and we didn't need a building and, and, and medical care is free. And we just took your appendix out and it didn't hurt and the drugs are better. OK, but in real life, you need real doctors, real buildings, real drugs, and it hurts. Right. And, it, it, and so, you know, virtual systems aren't the same as real systems. And when you compare Bitcoin as a real system to other real systems, other ways to do this, how, how would you move $10 billion worth of gold from New York to Tokyo and how much would that cost and how long would that take, right? And, and what you begin to realize is, I'll give you one more metaphor. It's like Bitcoin is seven transactions a second. Well, if I, if I told you it's seven transactions a second and it costs, you know, 50 cents or a dollar a transaction, you might think that's expensive compared to some other Visa network. But, but Visa is a virtual network. Bitcoin's a real network. The real analogy is what if I told you I could teleport seven aircraft carriers every second anywhere in the universe for free or for five bucks, right? You would think, what if I told you I could move every building in San Francisco every 140 milliseconds? You would think, well, it sounds pretty cheap, don't you think? Can you move a building in San Francisco to, to London in 140 milliseconds for 50 cents? Because Bitcoin can, right? You put a billion dollars, a billion dollars of Bitcoin and move it literally for 50 cents. So, and you can do it seven times a second. So, so if people start to think of it like that, once you get, once you get your metaphors right, you realize, wait a minute, we found a way to teleport property every 130 milliseconds, any amount of property anywhere on earth for next to nothing. The alternative is, oh yeah, well, the alternative is you have to basically blow up the building and rebuild it in London. And that takes about 10 years and that costs you $10 billion. Oh yeah, right. So it's a breakthrough. Most of the world doesn't understand it at all. And then there's you know a lot of crypto infighting between people that wanna push their own crypto protocols and they intentionally don't understand it or they have a vested interest in not thinking too hard because if I explain to you how it could all be done using Bitcoin, then you don't have a justification to sell $100 million worth of your altcoin. And you own 50% of the supply of the altcoin. So of course you want to sell. I don't blame you. Look, it's, again, it's, it's, it's not unreasonable to create a company and sell equity to the general public. It's just unethical to do it without fairly disclosing it as risk factors and complying with appropriate laws and mores. So you just got to do it the right way. If it's equity, fine. It's just not a commodity. If you want to yeah. do a commodity, you have to go back and look at what Satoshi did. And Satoshi gave you the, you know, you've got the playbook, which is you have to create it, release it into the general public and not benefit from it. 
right? So if, if the people that sold you the ICO still own the token, right? That, that's, that's not what Satoshi did. You know, the best thing about Bitcoin is it traded without any commercial value for a year and a half. The Satoshi coins never moved and Satoshi disappeared. And it's, it's left to the world as a gift to the world. That's, that's really the magical thing here. And now the question is, what are we going to do with it? Love it. That's Thanks, for another Michael. Podcast. That's, yeah, that's part two of the NIA podcast of Michael Saylor. Yeah. Michael, Thank you, we've gone a little bit over time, so we appreciate yep. you taking so much time with us today. This was definitely, uh, you know, something a year and a bit in the making. We've wanted to have you on here for a long time, so we really appreciate you coming on and spending time with us today. Anytime. Thank you, Michael. Have a great day, guys. Thanks, you too. Michael. Cheers. Have a good one. Bye-bye.